There was a big phase in that part of the world and at that era of uh, mud wrestling. So, okay. um, so I became entangled in a mud wrestling stunt while I was doing mornings. <laughs> and they really scratched their, their collective heads on that one. Like, this is Did what you we mud played. wrestle yourself? Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> Town President Dave Chachi Dennis loves radio and all of his radio friends. Hey, Chachi. Hey, everybody. Because Chachi loves everybody. <laughs> really excited. Uh, we are having someone join us that I've known for many years and has been a big supporter of ours over the years, for which I am incredibly grateful. Uh, he is a strategist, a media executive for decades. Uh, he's had leadership roles with multiple prominent companies. Uh, Buzz most recently, oh, I just gave it away, Buzz, by saying your name. <laughs> but <laughs> He most recently served as the EVP of Strategy and Innovation for Beasley Media Group, uh, which he joined in 2016 upon the closing of the company's purchase of Greater Media. His passion for great content uh, and tremendous brands has had an impact on diverse uh, lists of outstanding radio properties across the country. Uh, his industry advocacy has included multiple roles in and around ratings and audience measurement with participation of the National Association of Broadcasters, uh, C-O-L-R-A-M, which is the Committee on Local Radio Audience Measurement. Uh, he was part of the Nielsen Advisory Council and the Council for Research Excellence. He is also the creator and host of a podcast called the Taken a Walk podcast series, where, by the way, he just most recently had Paula Abdul on, which is incredibly cool. So I want to dive into that in a couple minutes. Uh, he's got big celebrity friends, obviously, but uh, please welcome Buzz Knight. Buzz, thank you so much, man, for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to join you, Chachi, and so great to uh, to see you, even though I saw you a few weeks back. I like that way better, but this is uh, the next best thing. Yeah, that was great. I actually ran into Buzz at uh, CES. Uh, how Was that your first time at CES, or have you been going to there uh, for a while? Chachi, it's been about 14 years. Oh, my gosh. And it's always a really great experience, not only seeing people, but just uh, getting your neck twisted in many different directions and getting startled by so many things that you see uh, coming down the pike. It's hard to explain. That was my second year that I'd gone, and it's just absolutely overwhelming. I mean, it's all over the place uh, in terms of just the, the uh, size of it. It's at the Las Vegas Convention Center. It's at the Venetian. Uh, they have uh, displays, I think, at, uh, uh, at MGM. I mean, it's literally all over town. And so it's, it's hard to really see it all. Uh, did you get a lot in? I did. I was able to, with my air quotes, press credentials, be able to nice. come in a few days earlier. And, oh, that's uh, cool. Get a sneak peek? Get some sneak peek. There's this thing called CES Unveiled that gives a sneak peek a couple days before. So I really liked the a couple days ahead of time uh, aspect of things. I think the most fun for me still is, you know, being scared of what comes around the pipe but in an appropriate manner, not in a go curl up in a fetal position sort of manner. And it's, it's a way I like starting the year to really try to freshen uh, w what I think of things and get out of my normal comfort. Sure. It's well, well put, kind of embracing that change and understanding what is coming at you. And it is absolutely mind boggling, the technology that uh, exists and uh, will be coming, I think, uh, into our homes uh, and workplaces in the next couple of years. Buzz, tell me a little bit about uh, growing up. Where did you grow up? 
It's assuming I actually have grown up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind of you. I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, which is about uh, 35, 40 miles outside of New York City. That's, I was just through there in November. Absolutely beautiful. My first time to Connecticut. Uh, I'm not sure if you know, but we have actually two employees that are there, uh, Tim McDonald's in Simsbury and Moss's in New Haven. And uh, what a gorgeous state. Did not know that. Yeah, you can get some really good pizza in that neck of the woods too. <laughs> you can. <laughs> We've got. I, I was. Uh, Masa took us to uh, Sally's, which was uh, really good. Incredible, incredible. So, did you grow up listening to New York radio then? Predominantly, yeah. There was certainly a little local station in Stanford, which was uh, impactful in its own way. But I grew up in the shadow of New York, listening to those New York stations. And did you know early on that was the path that you wanted to follow? Oddly, yes. Uh, <laughs> I remember I graduated from Stanford High School, and I remember going by the high school one day when I was, uh, I think, a sophomore or a junior, and just kind of staring at the school, knowing with certainty that I want to be involved somehow in the radio business. And what was the moment that first got you intrigued? I think it was uh, the storytelling aspect that came out of this guy named Gene Shepard, who, um, you know, A Christmas Story. Yeah, sure. Okay, well, that's based on a story from Gene Shepard's book called In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And um, Gene actually plays a cameo role. No kidding. What role does he play? He walks by when they're doing the um, Christmas tree shopping. Really? I had no idea. I, and I, I absolutely love that movie. And they just did, as you're aware, a, a, a sequel finally to it this, uh, this last holiday season. So he was an on-air host? He hosted a show on WOR Radio. I think actually lasted 15 minutes, maybe a half hour. And it was basically storytelling late at night. And that was the first experience that sort of cemented it for me. That's, that's incredible. I've done several of these and I've never heard that story. And I, I never knew that Gene Shepard was a, a DJ, let alone uh, the inspiration. And his story was adapted for one of my favorite movies, movies of all time. So after you graduated high school, I see that you went to the University of Dayton. When you went to Dayton, did you go to study broadcasting or what was your major? It was communications. Okay. And uh, the only reason, really, that I picked that school was because they had a commercial college uh, FM station, which was WVUD. And uh, I just, my dream was to go to school there and get a job there while I was in college. And um, actually, if I didn't get the job ultimately there at VUD, I probably would have left and gone somewhere else to school. No kidding. And you did get the job at VUD. I did. And what, what you were required to do if you got a job there, and of course my first one was overnights, you needed to stay through the summer. So it, Oh, wow. You, you so no going back no and going enjoying back. summer break. So they, it, they really looked at it. It was a, a college station, but it was still run very much like a, a, a commercial broadcast station. I wouldn't go that far, but no, it actually was. It was. It really, it really was. It competed against the commercial stations in the market and actually got ratings. It was really a tremendous place to start growing up. 
Do you remember cracking the mic for the first time? And uh, had you had any experience prior to that uh, that gig? Yeah, the Carrier Current Station actually uh, at the university, WESB. But I do remember certainly yeah, that first moment of, oh my God, I hope actual words come out of my mouth when you <laughs> crack the mic. <laughs> There is, I, you know, I recall so, uh, so well spread my, my early days in San Diego and that just exhilaration of cracking the mic. And, uh, it, it just felt like the, the room changed when it, you know, when you potted up that, uh, that microphone that was so, uh, exciting. Yeah. It's uh, exhilarating actually. Yeah. Yeah. So you go to Dayton, you work on air at the station. Did you try your hands at other things, programming or producing, or you really focused on being on air at that time? While I was on air, I also somehow must have hit my head and decided to uh, run uh, at the university to uh, be the person who ran the entertainment bureau, which was the concert division that the university had. Um, (laughs) I don't know what got into me there, but... That didn't last very long because I wasn't very good at it. I was trying to, you know, maintain my uh, grade point average, and I was working at the radio station. So I'd like to tell you that was a long-standing gig, but it was very short-lived. <laughs> that is so funny. I did almost the exact same thing. I was down in San Diego at USD. I studied communications as well. We did not have a radio station, but I had, was working at a commercial station at KFMB, but I was part of the um, Associated Student Body, and I had the role of, they called it Director of Showcase. So I was in charge of basically bringing in showcases, which could be anything from a comedian to a band, and I did that, but uh, it was kind of, I, I was so focused on a working, be my studies, and then see that. I'm not quite sure how I did it, but it probably wasn't the best of best year of entertainment uh, for the University of San Diego. <laughs> I bet if we look back historically, we would find that Chachi had some of the best bookings and actually yeah. did a tremendous job <laughs> because you're a very humble man and that's why everybody uh, loves you. <laughs> the highlight though this you know this was back in the day but we had um uh, kevin nealon uh came by the comedian and then we had no doubt this was very early on though of no doubt um you know r- really kind of right before they broke um so that was kind of the, the highlights but they weren't a, a big a big band at the time so you graduate from the university of dayton um you then go back to Connecticut to go work for home home news and really quick back at the Dayton station. What was it? I know a lot of college stations kind of will, will change format from show to show. What was the format of the college station? It was, it was rock. It was album oriented rock. Okay. And you go now to, back to Connecticut at, uh, to RKI. Um, were your parents happy to have you back, uh, back in the state? They were, They were. They were very happy. I had about a six-week run at a radio station in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, WKQQ, and they hated the fact that I did that right out of college. So when I came back home, they were very happy, for sure. Were they supportive along the way? Were they excited about you getting into broadcasting? They were very supportive. Uh, They used to listen to me in Connecticut. They listened to me in New York when I worked there. They didn't always like everything that I I did. And there were some moments that I deeply regretted them hearing these things on the radio. <laughs> what, 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 what kind of moments? I was hoping you would ask. 
Um, <laughs> well, there was a big phase in that part of the world and at that era of uh, mud wrestling. So, okay. um, so I became entangled in a mud wrestling stunt while I was doing mornings, and they really <laughs> scratched their, their collective heads on that one. Like this is did what you we mud played. wrestle yourself? Unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> I still have the sand to prove it. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Beck, I'm going to tell you a story. So there's a guy that we'll talk about later named John Fulham, who I think you've heard of. Yeah. uh, uh, One of the best people in the business, one of my best friends. Is he uh, on the board of uh, LMA down in San Diego, or am I making that up? Um, I'm not sure about that, but you would know John because John most recently had been with Odyssey out in Denver. He had been in New York City as well. He had a longstanding career with greater media. Uh, He went to the University of Dayton also before me. And he ran CBS for a time as as the chief uh, operating officer. So John was the sales manager back in Connecticut when the mud wrestling event happened. <laughs> it would happen to be his account, whichever bar that was, whichever CD bar that was. So I remember clearly John saying to me, I got your back, buddy. I, you know, when the actual mud wrestling, uh, you know, at the club occurred, I, I'm, 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 I'm there for you. Right. So he's in your corner. It's in my corner to the point of where all he could do is point at me and laugh with pains in his stomach hysterically at what I was going through. That's the support I got from my dear friend, John, who I love. So when you had, yeah, when you go from the, the AOR to home news where you did this stunt, and I'm, am I reading this properly? This was a news station and you were doing mud wrestling at a news station? No, it was a rock station. It was, owned oh, it was a by, rock station. It was owned by a company that owns some little newspapers. That's how. Oh, it, understood. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. It was a rock station. <laughs> But still, obviously, conservative ownership. It was owned by a news organization. That'd be pretty funny, actually, what you suggest. <laughs> do, do, do pictures exist uh, from this, uh, uh, this Royal Rumble? Unfortunately, but they're only in my possession. <laughs> <laughs> so you're in Connecticut. How long were you at uh, RKI? I was there for about 10 years. Oh, that's a heck of a run. And you were doing mornings. I did mornings, afternoons, mornings, programming the whole time. And then the last three years of my time there, I got to fulfill a dream working at WNEW-FM on the weekends. Got it. So you were on the weekends going into New York and doing air shifts there. And then, so you're working basically seven days a week. At what point, Buzz, did you, because you're really known for just being a brilliant programmer, when did you start to take on the interest in programming? Were you doing that back in, in Dayton or was that more when you were at RKI? RKI, definitely. Got it. And then uh, did the programmer there just kind of take you under your wings or under his wings or her wings? Or how did you start to uh, get more into it? I'm not really sure. I think sometimes the rule of just showing up puts you in contention for things. So I think, you know, they probably looked around and they went, well, there's nobody else. So I guess him. 
That's <laughs> so funny. I had gotten that advice early on. Bill Leopold, who uh, was very kind, uh, he managed Melissa Etheridge and Bread and uh, Dave Cause and a mentor of mine and gave us office space very early on. And he said, just show up every day. Just show up. And he's 100% right. No matter what, just show up. And uh, if that door is open, you allow things to come in. If you don't show up, the door's not open and uh, opportunity is not going to come knocking. So uh, great, great advice. And I agree with that a hundred percent. So from RKI slash part-times at NEW, you then get hired uh, by Great American uh, to go work in Detroit at LK, uh, LQV. Actually Columbus, WLVQ in Columbus. Oh, I'm sorry. Columbus. Got it. Yep. My apologies. Yep. Uh, LVQ in Columbus. QFM 96, WLVQ. And what were you hired there to program or be on air? I was hired to program and do afternoon drive as well. And at this point, are you enjoying the programming aspect more or on air? Or would you say it's just kind of a equal in your passion? Well, when I left, it was really equal passions. But when, once I got there and, and spent certainly a fair amount of time, I, I think it was a year plus, I realized I needed to fire myself probably from either position, whether it be the programmer or whether it be uh-huh. the afternoon drive. And um, just because of trying to master one of them, I didn't feel like I was particularly good at mastering both. So I convinced them to let me come off the air and be an off-air program director. Got it. That's, I was an off-air program director, and I think that gives you, you know, an opportunity to obviously focus on the station more and to, I think, you know, ultimately do a better job. But it, it, now we're back to the day and age where that's a rarity. You know, most programmers are expected to be on, on air and a lot of times programming multiple stations or they're also the marketing director, whatever that may be. Yeah, which, which concerns me, even though it does take us back to certainly some of what we remember where you wore multiple hats and you didn't really have an issue with it. But LVQ was, certainly is, but really was a very personality intensive, promotionally active. It was a, you know, big honking station. So it needed a lot of, of, you know, attention as well. Sure. Was that moment hard for you uh, coming off the air? I was never a particularly great on-air talent. I was more of a sidekick and weekend person and so forth. So for me, it wasn't really that heartbreaking, but it sounds like you spent a lot of time honing your on-air craft. It was very hard for me. It really was. And what was cool is while I was in Columbus, I'd come home for, uh, for Thanksgiving or Christmas. And uh, at that time, Mark Chernoff, was programming WNEW-FM, Mark used to call me up as he was doing the, the schedule for the holidays, and he'd say, you coming back home? And I was like, yeah. He goes, you want to get your plane ticket paid for? Because I got a couple of shifts for you. Uh, so I would continue <laughs> to do some, some NEW shifts. Oh, that's um, great. Uh, even though I had left. So you could uh, at least kind of uh, satiate uh, your desire for uh, some some uh, on-air work. That uh, That's great. I remember uh, Harvey Pennick. I don't know if you're a golfer or not, but he wrote the little red book about golf. And, uh, you know, he fancied himself as a very good golfer. He played for a major university and he was a, a great golfer, but uh, he had entered himself in a tournament and uh, he walked down to the range to see Ben Hogan uh, practice. And he mentioned how when Ben Hogan hit the ball, it sounded like a rifle. It just was like, it it was so, you know, crisp and so loud. It was a sound that he just couldn't 
recreate. And he understood at that moment that he just was never going to be at that level. And that's what kind of happened to me from an on-air perspective. When I, especially when I came down, San Diego was exposed to some incredibly talented, like, you know, air talent, like Jeff and Jer and Jagger and Christie and, and so forth. But I came to LA and all of a sudden when I'm in the, you know, um, working at Kiss with, you know, at the time Rick Dees and uh, uh, Jojo, who's still there today. And you just, they were my Ben Hogan. And you're just like, oh my God, they are so good. No matter how much I were to work on this, I just never would be <laughs> as good as those guys are. And uh, that was kind of the the moment for me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really going to focus my career on producing and then programming. Yeah, I mean, I, I I had some regrets of giving it up for sure, thinking maybe I could have, you know, managed my time better or whatever. But uh, that was the path I chose. So yeah, well, it worked. It worked out all right. <laughs> it's all it's all worked out all right. So from uh, Columbus, do you go to? And I may have this messed up, so I apologize ahead of time. Do you go to NOR in uh, Virginia? I do. I I had been okay. competing against this guy in Columbus who ran a station in Columbus called uh, WSNY. Um, I'd been competing against this Steve Goldstein guy. <laughs> um, who now has Amplify Media, but ran programming for Saga. And uh, so we were friendly just from that whole, you know, competitive uh, dynamic. And uh, Steve recruited me to go to work for FM 99 WNOR in Norfolk. That's great. And Steve, too, was at uh, CES. I don't know if you uh, saw him or not, but he uh, came by the party. It was great to see him as well. We put some steps on together, for sure. Oh, good. <laughs> what was it like working for Steve? I mean, obviously a legendary programmer. And then Ed Christian, who unfortunately uh, just passed away a few months ago, but uh, both uh, you know icons in the business. It was tremendous. I used to learn from Steve competing against him, just kind of observing his talents and what he brought into, you know, his, his radio stations, just as I did in Columbus with the late Dave Robbins, who I competed against, who was a tremendous programmer and manager who unfortunately passed away. So then going to work for Steve was even further uh, learnings and uh, just, you know, just great disciplines, tremendous you know, sharpening of the skills always was really what Steve brought out. And honestly, being still friends with him after all these years, he still brings that out. That's great. So you guys have had a long, uh, a long partnership, mentorship, uh, friendship. I see a trend, a uh, lot of rock stations. Do you gravitate uh, personally to rock music? I do, although... Uh, ultimately, you know, as my roles and companies uh, broadened out to other formats and other music types, that certainly allowed me to to learn about those genres and, and format types. But I started, you know, around rock was most influenced around that and certainly uh, is, is high on my list. You uh, spend time. How long were you at Saga? I was at Saga for a couple of years, about two years. A couple of years. And then you get a call, uh, CBS Infinity, uh, to become the PD at ZLX in Boston, um, where you now still reside. So you've been in Boston, I think, ever, ever since. But uh, tell me about that phone call. Um, it was from the general manager, a gentleman named Jerry Charm. And um, at that time, Infinity didn't own the station because there was this island that a bunch of stations had been put on because they were trying to be sold to infinity and 
There was this guy named Howard Stern who was part of Infinity and the FCC and Howard and, you know, Mel Karmazin were at odds. So Jerry said, you know, I'd like you to take the job. And I said, I, I haven't spoken to Mel, though. So called Mel up and uh, Mel said, well, we don't own the station yet, but uh, let's assume we will. And then if we do, hopefully you'll like us and we'll like you and you'll have a long relationship. And uh, amazing that for me. Amazing. What was Mel like having that conversation? <laughs> was that just nerve wracking in and of itself? Yeah, it was for sure. <laughs> yeah. But I just have to tell you, being afforded the opportunity to get to work for him there and to work with the classic rock formats as a format captain uh, and to sort of be involved also with other sort of special projects that he had going on was definitely one of the greatest joys of my career. Yeah. I mean, at that time, it really was the, the Tiffany network, right? I mean, I think it still had that, uh, that lustrous, illustrious, uh, feeling to it. Uh, great programmers. Um, you think of the programmers that came through there, including yourself, uh, just, you know, brilliant, brilliant minds. And they invested heavily, uh, had phenomenal, uh, uh sticks all around, all around the country. So I, I don't think you could have worked during that era really at a better, uh, you know, better group of stations. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, and you always had to be on your toes. Uh, there was no throwing BS at Mel at all because he picked it right up quickly. <laughs> Would you share ideas? I mean, because like being the format uh, captain for the rock stations, were you working with guys like Weatherly, uh, for instance? Would you guys, uh, you know, just idea exchanges? And I, I could just kind of see these these brilliant minds all together. But would there be much collaboration between the various markets? Yeah, and that was something um, I remember John Guerin, who oversaw elements of the company at that time. John was part of trying to bring all that together, and he was very good at doing that. And what really seemed to be the case, and I definitely learned from that, is the best cross-collaborations generally don't get forced. They really happen organically, and those are the most beneficial you know, types and, you know, an example certainly for me was always Tim Sabian in that in that organization, because, you know, Tim and I just had that organic ability to have that, you know, collaboration. So John really was great at trying to bring everybody together. But that's a hard job. And sometimes forcing sure. isn't always optimum, you know. Sure, and with with creatives aren't uh, aren't always easy to to match. You look at uh, you know artists, and a lot of times they've got different visions, and so sometimes they can collaborate, and other times uh, it, it doesn't go as, uh, as swimmingly. Um, you're there. Uh, how long are you with? And by the way, really quick question for you: Was Scott Herman at that point overseeing the operations? Scott, or was, was he still uh, just New York? He was New York. New York, okay. Great guy. I'm a big, big Love Scott him. Herman fan. He's a really good man. How long were you at uh, uh, ZLX? About 10 years as well. That's a big run. So you, uh, you've, you, when you go places, you, you stick around, yeah. <laughs> which is obviously a, a testament uh, to, to you. You're uh, great, great at what you do. So then how does the transition happen uh, from Boston to now becoming the SVP of programming for greater media? Once again, you know, the way these things happen, you know somebody from being in a market. So I knew Peter Smythe from being around Boston, just from certainly his work, his reputation. And, um, you know, just we just we knew each other, not super, super well. 
And he just, I remember, called me out of the blue, even though we would keep in touch. And he said, um, I'd like to get together with you if possible. So that's always an inkling that, you know, he might have something more than just how the Patriots were doing to talk about. And uh, <laughs> so we got together and happened pretty quickly. And that now becomes another, I mean, you're obviously programming a, you know, a legendary classic rock station in, in, in a you know, top 10 market. There's a lot of pressure there, but now you become the SVP of programming and you're overseeing Boston, Philly, Detroit, Charlotte, and uh, stations in New Jersey. So your, your job, I think, becomes exp exponentially uh, more, more challenging. What was that transition like for you? To have one baby, you know, to now having how many uh, family, uh, how many stations did the board's family have at that point? It's like 22, I believe. Yeah. So now you've got 20, 22 babies. Yeah, it was difficult at first, honestly. It was difficult adjusting to the rhythm and flow of it and to sort of understand really how to, to have a role that'd be most beneficial for everybody and for the company. So it, uh, you know, it didn't happen easily immediately because it required me to uh, kind of get a different look at myself, frankly. And now you, again, back to your, uh, your rock chops, you now have all sorts of different formats of stations. So were you, I'm sure you're obviously a student of radio, so it wasn't like you weren't familiar with these other formats, but what was that like now coming in as a rock guy and then maybe giving direction to an AC station? Required me to be a better listener to the individual, either manager or, you know, programmer, because as I really understood it all, my job was to set them up, you know, with the right resources to be successful and the right tools to be successful and to help them in that process, but then to get out of their way. So that was really where I kind of learned that more because and then, then I, and conversely, with rock stations, I'd have to figure that same rhythm out because of my past, you know, association with the format. So it really sure. required how to trust people and to be a better manager. Yeah, I could see, and I, you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't even actually look at it that way. But you're probably much harder on your on your rock programmers than you were on your AC programmers, for instance, just given your your background. I'm curious about, um, you know, Ed Christian, um, who we were just talking about at Saga, was obviously known as a very hands-on operator and involved uh, with the stations. Was the board's family really involved in the day-to-day -day operations, or was that something that they allowed more of their executives like Peter and yourself to handle? Yeah, they, they left it to us. Although when the, the late John Bordas was, um, you know, involved and, and stuff, he was involved in – really, uh, you know, higher level manners uh, where he got super involved was when there were things about employee benefits and things of that nature uh, to really try to, you know, look out for the employees. So by and large, the Bordises, including John, you know, they entrusted us. That's great. So they, what they allowed you to do was also a good lesson on how you were able to now empower your people at a, at a local level. I admire that. I really do. And you know what? That foster Chachi was a, hopefully, I think, a, a not a one-size-fits-all model. Everything was a bit nuanced, and you needed to respect those nuances when possible. Sure. I'm reading Jeff Simoleon's book right now, which is uh, fantastic. I don't know if you've read it or I not. Have. But I, I wonder if you get to a point and – 
I'm, again, let me back up. I wonder what the sweet spot of station ownership really is. When you get too big, does it get to a point where it's uh, too overwhelming to be able to program and manage and operate those radio stations? Is the sweet spot that somewhere 20 to 50 radio stations versus some of the bigger groups that now you know have hundreds, as you know, or close to 1,000? If you're iHeart. So I think that there's probably efficiencies with these incredibly large groups, but then I also feel like you may become inefficient in certain aspects, especially when it comes to programming. I think it's really tricky because there are so many benefits to being that smaller operator compared to the larger broadcasters. But then there's also that susceptibility that if you have one market that gets into trouble, it really can impact the entire company. We used to say sure, that with greater media, where if at that time we owned Magic 1067 in, in Boston, and if Magic, you know, got a head cold, the entire company caught the flu. Right. That uh, makes sense. I get that. So now all of a sudden <laughs> you have a few, uh, you've got uh, uh, too many eggs in the bat, or not enough eggs in the basket. Maybe I guess is the expression that uh, would make sense. So if you're larger, you can. Um, yeah, I remember. I can't remember. I think it was Ray Dalio, but he had said like the perfect number of revenue streams is 17. And if you have 17, and I don't know where that came from, but it was in his book, and I always kind of like that's ah, a that's an interesting number. <laughs> but you're right. If if one of the if not all those revenue streams are equal, and one of those revenue streams you know is equivalent to uh, uh you know the other 16, yeah, I could see where that all of a sudden it would uh, certainly have uh, put a lot of pressure on the company. Very very interesting. So the uh, Bordas family decides to sell. Uh, what year did they sell Greater Media? 2016. 2016 to the Beasleys. And then you transition uh, with them and as well as, as Heidi Raphael and uh, uh, several others. And you become the EVP of programming and strategy and innovation uh, for Beasley. So now you go from the, tw- how many stations did Graded Media have at that point? It was the 22, 23, whatever number. Yeah. And Beasley's about equal size. Um, so now you've got, what, 50, 60 radio stations? 60, yeah, it was 64, I believe, yeah. Yeah, so all of a sudden now you've got almost three times, I guess, two-third, uh, uh, 200, uh, um, yeah, two and a half times more work, I guess. What was that transition like? It was, uh, you know, a lot of things, a lot of emotions. It was closing one chapter. Uh, it was opening a new chapter. It was certainly thinking systematically about things that used to be and then see we were going to have another way of looking at it. It was it was a lot of things that were certainly, you know, they ran the gamut. They could be exhilarating, but they could also be overwhelming in that regard. But I, I would say in the big picture, the way that transition went uh, with the two companies and thinking even specifically about the greater media brands, it was pretty solidly done. Yeah, I would agree. If you look at the performance of the stations, they've all really, for the most part, continued to perform incredibly well. Yep. And I think when you're merging two different cultures and, uh, you know, it's, it's not easy. There's a lot of, uh, I think, uh, different issues you've, you have to tackle. But, uh, you know, in this business particularly, which I think a large part of it is an art, just trying to kind of take those two cultures and merge them and continue to be productive and continue to put out a great product isn't, isn't easy. 
And uh, I think it was, you know, le- le- at least looking from the outside in, it appeared to go off incredibly well. Yeah, I would agree. And I think, you know, that's, that's not an easy dance, you know. No, no, not, not at all. And so then you stayed with Beasley then for another three or four years. And now you uh, transitioned and you started your own company, uh, Buzz Night Media. What made you decide to do that? So I had, I had hit this point in, in life uh, where I was sort of looking, thinking about where my heart and soul would go. My mom had recently passed away. She was 102, but, you know, that was obviously a pivotal point in my life. And That's you know, uh, just really quick. Let me hit on that. That's incredible. 102 years old. So she got to see the vast majority of your career, which yeah. I think has got to be an, incredibly special. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it was really like honest assessment, I suppose, that was to try to challenge what I can do and what I can try to build and what I can see as another chapter here. I I did it with certainty, even though it was hard because, you know, certainly the greater media folks were people I had been close with and still am. And then I'd made new friends, you know, whether they be the Beasleys themselves or, you know, certainly others inside the organization or at the radio stations or on the corporate, you know, side of things, you know, Justin and others there. So it just felt like if I was ever going to take this next chapter on and try to navigate it, if I didn't do it at that point, when was I going to do it? I really, you know, commend you for it. It takes a lot of guts. It's uh, not not easy to do. I think programmers and radio people, uh, air talent and programmers for that matter, are entrepreneurial in their own right because as a programmer and on-air talent, you've got to develop brand and you've got to develop an audience and you've got to develop a, a craft. And so I think we probably have more entrepreneurial spirit than maybe other professions, but that's still a gigantic leap of faith uh, to, I'm sure, you know, at some point in, uh, you've, you've done well over your career and you've worked for big companies and been in big roles. So I'm sure you've got a nice nest egg, but at the same time, it's still, it, it, it can, you know, it, you feel it, you feel that those butterflies in your chest when you make a move like that. Yeah. And, Chachi, the thing was, I was afforded, you know, great freedoms over my career, really throughout the ability to try to grow and to learn how to be better and how to manage and have these great people to influence that. So really, in each case, I really did have tremendous freedoms. But there's a different sort of freedom when you're trying to look either creatively or strategically or emotionally about, you know, what you want to try to do. No, I get it. Talk to me a little bit about what your, your day to day is now. Walk me through a day. These dogs we have get two damn walks a day, which is hard for me to figure. They get better health care than we do. And no, I'm kidding. Um, well, look for the, fr- I would say for the first year year and a half of um, this this chapter, I definitely had some project work in the form of some, some talent coaching. I still enjoy that and, and still enjoy projects such as that. And there had been, you know, some other uh, project-oriented work uh, as well, uh, in addition to still doing work around NAB-initiated uh, uh, work. But um, the brunt of that first 
year or maybe 14, 15 months, there was some gentleman I was working on a um, startup idea on that was a music storytelling platform, basically. We, we had tremendous ideas. We were horrible at getting fundraising. And I learned a lot in that process. That was almost like an MBA, a 14-month MBA, because we really were consumed uh, with trying to get this project off the ground. So that was, that was a, a, a brunt of that time besides some of the project-oriented work. But today, to answer your question, in addition to still some work within you know, the NAB side of things, I like to write when possible, certainly for uh, Radio Inc., As we mentioned earlier, CES is still a passion. So that was something I poured myself into kind of leading in and during uh, the event as well. And then I came up with this idea that's called taking a walk. And that it takes up a lot of time to be a content creator and to try to build an audience. And and I would say that's taking certainly uh, a large dose of time uh, in my, in my life. Yeah. These, uh, these podcasts take up uh, a lot more energy than you would, <laughs> than you would think. I mean, uh, I love your podcast by the way. And Thank your you. most recent episode, you had uh, Paula, Paula Abdul. How did that come about? Uh, being on the press list for CES afforded that opportunity. And, um, it's so rare when you ask the PR person, well, can I interview her? And they're like, yeah. I mean, normally that never happens that's, that way. Yeah, you, you know? that's so cool. You know? So incredibly cool. Yeah. That's, that's great. How many episodes uh, have you put out so far with Taking a Walk? I think I'm 130 or so episodes. Whoa, <laughs> that is really impressive. I think this is number 37 or 38 for me, something like that. I'm blown away. Uh, over what period of time? So I, I, this is about uh, almost the it's about fourteen fifteen months I believe. Jeez, yeah, I've been at this for I think about three years now prior to the pandemic, and so I'm congratulations. That's a tremendous amount of work. Well, and, I had uh, done a podcast uh, when I had been working with Beasley. I had one that was called Healthy Paranoia that was around tech and uh, leadership sort of themes. Um, and then I sort of then migrated some of that over to something I was calling buzz cuts, which was really that type of thing. But, um, I knew it was going to be difficult to build an audience and then to keep up with it. And it isn't as if I was surprised by it. It's just more work than you even think. Yeah. And I think you see some of the statistics, which you, I'm sure you know all uh, too well, that the vast majority of podcasts never get past six episodes. So we're already, uh, we're already doing better than most. <laughs> you're doing much better than most, but uh, I think you're right. I think people get into this thinking, oh, it's going to be uh, easy. I'm going to talk into a, a microphone, record a show, and uh, you don't realize the prep. And it's much like uh, you know radio, and I think that's why we've seen a lot of radio companies uh, uh, transition successfully uh, in, into podcasting. I saw an interesting article this morning about uh, how the successful uh, broadcasting companies right now, at least uh, I can't remember who did the analysis, but uh, this person's take on it were the ones that were transitioning into digital and now have part of their revenue stream, you know, eight, nine, 10%. And so uh, this analyst, uh, he noted uh, Town Square, he noted Urban One, um, and then a few others. Uh, Do you agree with that? 
I do. I think the diversification uh, dance is is critical from various content hubs that you try to pull from. And it's a great talking point to get out there to, you know, the banks and everything. But it's hard to do that, you know. It is. It's really hard to do that. Uh, I can tell you, uh, you know, from our own personal experience, we've tried, uh, you know, a handful of podcasts and most of them to get over, you know, a thousand downloads per episode. It's really, really difficult. And, uh, you know, we've got a couple right now, Sound Success and Sobriety with Matt Pinfield, uh, one called uh, The Neurotic Vaccine with Andy Cohen, and they're both doing fair, but uh, not great. And so to monetize them, we're still, you know, uh, significantly upside down about those shows. And so I love going and trying to take a swing at it and, uh, you know, doing the very best we possibly can to create some compelling uh, content. Uh, but it is in a lot of ways like trying to catch lightning in a bottle. Yeah, well, congratulations on those because it's no light work that you're putting in for it and that your folks that are part of it, you know, Matt and, and the whole crew. But I think, yeah, it is it is a tricky territory. Look, what I love about it all is I continue to learn and what a uh, thing to be grateful for that I'm still learning things and I'm either sharpening old skills or developing new skills along the way. Just like that project that I referred to that I was trying to get funded on, I sort of look at this like, well, maybe one door opens another door that opens another door. So, you know, whether it be that startup, whether it be taking a walk uh, and then where the, the doors open, we never know, but it is part of the joy of the mystery. Hundred percent. I really uh, got so much uh, respect for you, and I love your just natural curiosity and uh, the fact that you're just always looking to improve yourself and and grow and learn uh, new things. Uh, I think sometimes uh, in this industry and in others, but we suffer sometimes from stagnation of ideas or stagnation of moving forward. But I love that uh, you're, you're always moving forward. But let's take a look backwards just really quickly because I think that there's been a big shift over the last few years from the owner operator, which you got to work with for a big part of your career, the Beasleys and the Bordes, Bordes family, uh, to now the, uh, the, the the corporate side. And I guess that's really been happening for like the last 20, 25 years, really, when you look at deregulation. But you, we've seen some owner operators, Jeff Simoleon, uh, the Bordes family, uh, just get out of the business completely. Um, Ed, you know, unfortunately passing away. Do you feel that stations are better operated as a uh, family business, if you will, owner operator, or do you feel uh, that they are more successful as more of a big corporation like an iHeart or an Odyssey? I feel like there's a hybrid somewhere in the middle. I'm not sure what it really is because I think there's either, you know, strengths in scale or from intelligence over a big corporate staff. But at its heart and soul, I think when an operator, let's say, who's managing, you know, a cluster in a market can really operate as if they're the CEO of that company, their own company, and make decisions and certainly communicate uphill, you know, or up. Up, up the ladder, not uphill, sometimes uphill. Um, but, you know, I think it's a stronger 
problem solving, creative force, connection to a community. So I think there's a middle ground somewhere. And I think it probably depends on, you know, some of the nuances. It's yeah. a great point. I, I think that there is something to be said about the institutional knowledge that the owner operators families have, and they've been in it for such a long time and they get it and they understand it. But I a hundred percent agree with you that I think that there are certain aspects that a larger corporation can bring to the overall business uh, to improve it. And I think you're right. I don't know if there is a, uh, a one size fits all, but I am saddened to see some of the people in our industry either, you know, leave on their own, um, uh, you know, on their own, or you've got people like, you know, Lou and John who were for, you know, forced out. You've got people that unfortunately passed away. So it does come in all shapes and sizes, but um, I do find it very um, uh, interesting, the shape of our industry changing as dramatically as it has in the last, you know, let's call it 20 years. I think my fear is if that proper hybrid model doesn't exist, we're going to lose either that market manager that knows how to navigate inside their own company, fight for what's right, and to not be afraid to do that, or the same for a program director's role as well. Because if those two type of roles become afraid to fight for what they believe, then we really are in a dark place, and I don't want us to be there. Really good point. Probably more than anything just comes down to the culture, the culture of the organization, whether it's family owned, corporate owned, or a combination thereof, um, being able to have that autonomy that you talk about, the ability to speak freely, um, and to be able to, you know, communicate with your uh, management team and the leadership. That's really a, a good point. Buzz, I so greatly appreciate you, man, taking the time to be on the podcast today. I uh, highly recommend uh, checking out Taking uh, Taking a Walk uh, podcast. Uh, Buzz is a phenomenal host and I think just a, a brilliant, brilliant mind. Chachi, I'm grateful that you asked me to be on and for everything that uh, you've done for, for me and companies I've worked for, uh, but also what you do for the industry and for your whole team, what they do. Thank you, my friend. And thank you for your support. You're a good man. Thanks for listening to Chachi Loves Everybody. If you like the show, we hope you leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends. Please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been a Benstown McVeigh podcast production. Hosted and researched by Dave Chachi Dennis. Executive producer, Darren Silva. Producer and editor, Jake Urbanic. Show coordinator, Estefania Padilla. Marketing and distribution, Suzanne Aksu and Robbie Gessel.